0: Welcome to The Policy Shop, weekly conversations with public policy experts where we'll dive into the most important issues affecting all of us here in Illinois. I'm Hillary Gowans, let's get started. Today I'm off campus with Katie Anderson, whose family has owned Anderson's Candy Shop based in Richmond, Illinois for over 100 years. They survived the Great Depression and now they're fighting their way through COVID-19. We'll be talking about Andersons and what life is like as a small business owner today. Katie, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having. Thanks for having me. us here at your yeah, shop. Thanks for coming after this us. is awesome. <laughs> I know I'm usually in our little studio, and now I get to be at a chocolate shop. Yeah. I told my kids where I was going today, and they were so mad at me. <laughs> like, please, can we come with you? We could
1: set, we'll send you home with some candy. Yeah, for, um, I know yeah. that.
0: That but- I promised that. So, I wanted to talk with you today about life as a small business owner? And that is probably a complicated question to answer in general, (laughs) but especially what it's been like navigating the pandemic.
1: Yeah. Um, I would say uh, if I had to boil it down to one sentence, it is like being a first-year business owner all over again. Um, Everything that we, all of our records of like targets for production and the supplies we use and the way we schedule staff and the way we plan. Uh, Starting in like March, 2020, all of that became completely useless. Uh, And we had to uh, devote way, way more time to just figuring out how to run the business, how to... And, And our candy shop, we not only sell chocolates and candy bars and confections, uh, we have two retail locations, but we also manufacture. So I make the caramel, the English toffee, the marshmallow. It's all made from scratch in my building. So we were facing uh, the struggles that the retail world was facing, but also that the manufacturing world was facing. So I said it would be one sentence, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, but it, it's basically, it was like having a first-year business all over again um, in, to, in a short way. <laughs>
0: yeah step back a little bit tell me about the history of the business because this has been in your family for years and years
1: yeah so we're in our 103rd year this year um and we began in 1919 in downtown Chicago in the 3300 block of North Armitage uh in a little like alcove of a space Uh, my great-grandfather Arthur and his wife Gertrude um Arthur had been working for another candy company Crans. Uh, they were very popular at the turn of the last century, and he decided he really wanted to go into business for himself, and he got the blessing of Crans Candy to do that. And so he worked hard, uh, expanded his shop in downtown Chicago uh, from 1919 to 1926. That's where we were. And then in 1926, rent shot up to like $10 a month or something silly, uh, and they got a hot tip that Richmond, Illinois was going to be the next big suburb. And if you don't know about Richmond, Illinois, the population today is 1,200 people. <laughs> so <laughs> we're still waiting for the boom. Um, but, uh, but we've been here in Richmond ever since uh, in this same location. Um, and this is where we make all of our own centers from scratch. So buttercream, caramel, toffee, all of that's done in small batches on a gas stove and a copper kettle. Um, and then all of those centers are also cut and hand-dipped in chocolate in the building, too. So we don't use um, big enrobing machines like commercial candy makers. We have a team of uh, chocolate dipping room staff. They uh, work with chocolate on an individual kind of table surface and hand dip each piece of candy that we sell here. Um, So that allows us to use a really high quality, thick, um, nice type of chocolate that you don't get everywhere, especially nowadays. So that's kind of... um, Our business, and we've been pretty much doing the same thing for about 103 years. Uh, Then, more recently, um, since the 80s, and especially the advent of the internet age in the early 2000s, um, we have online business, and we ship our candies all over the country. So there are people in Texas and even Canada, and um, sometimes overseas that get our candy. They order it online, and we ship it all over the country and the world. So. Uh, I think that's that's pretty much what we do.
0: <laughs> so you and I have talked a lot about this before. Yes. Um, but you're a working mom. You mentioned that the founder of the business is Arthur. Your son is Arthur. Yes, yes. And yes. you've got Georgia. <laughs> How old are your kids? So Georgia is three,
1: and Arthur is 19 months old. So he was born on April 6th during the lockdown, which was terrible. <laughs> uh, and I think the first time I talked to the Illinois Policy Institute, it was the, maybe the week right before Pritzker had, like, put the shutdown order in place, and I was talking to you on the phone in my OB's office, <laughs> uh, kind of freaking out about having a baby and also having a business and what were we going to do? Because at that time, so the candy calendar, right? Uh, Easter is a big deal if you own a chocolate shop. And the, the week that kind of the shutdown stuff started, I had already done... of my Easter production. So I had 10s of 1000s of dollars spent already in supplies and payroll. And then I was facing the world shutting down. And was I going to be able to sell it? What were we going to do? Were we going to lose the business? So Um, That really accelerated the expansion even more of our uh, curbside services, our mail orders, and our our just website in general. We knew we needed to evolve immediately if we were going to navigate that Easter season and be able to get the net profit that we needed as a business to continue on after that moment in time. Um, Yeah, so that's that's where I was
0: then. (laughs) And uh, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, and I think you know we've talked about this too being a working mom during this entire situation yeah it has been a challenge you had a baby yes <laughs> and saved a business and raised another baby yes. and maintained a healthy marriage yes yeah <laughs> what is it like to be juggling all of these precarious balls in the air that you have especially motherhood because thousands and thousands of women dropped out of the workforce altogether and have not come back yet. Yes. Uh, so what's that been like for you? How have you made it work?
1: Um, well, um, it. my husband and I both a few days a week work with the kids. So he works in IT. So he's able to work from home a few days a week and then have the kids at home with him while he does that. And then I bring my kids to work with me a couple days a week. So um, in our Business. Uh, there's an area, kind of a play space slash mommy's office table, um, <laughs> that uh, I will like send emails, do invoices, talk to customers on the phone while the kids are kind of playing in the background. Um, on good days, it works great. On bad days, they watch um, a lot of cartoons <laughs> and eat a lot of jelly beans because mommy needs to get work done. <laughs> Uh, It's been very humbling. (laughs) Um, And, uh, you know, it it has been good to the staff that we work with. We have about maybe 18 employees. Uh, Most of them are women who are either moms or grandmas themselves. And so I have been blessed to have a business that employs other understanding people who like, if I needed to go to the bathroom, I could have them hold my baby (laughs) while I go pee. (laughs) Um, So that's That's, it's been a lot of, um, yeah, also I think with the people we employ and and with myself and Tracy, who I manage the business with, a lot of flexibility, like what time is nap time going to happen today? What time are we eating? What are we eating? Um, And it's nice, it's been paramount too that staff and family have all been on the same page that our number one goal is to make the business survive and make it work. Um, and if that means thinking outside of the box about what traditional is or what perfect might be on any given day, um, obviously I take motherhood and my children seriously, but I think I am more relaxed than I used to be about having lunch at the same time. (laughs) Um, and that those kind of details. The other thing that I think has affected our not I think, it has affected our business in relation to motherhood. um, My small business traditionally employs a lot of second income earners, which stereotypically, at least in the area where we're located, is a lot of moms. And with the pandemic, uh, normally that's my employee pool. Um, And they all of a sudden that employee pool was dry because moms were staying home with their kids because they had to do homeschool or, um, or because with the even if they didn't have school-age kids, with the extra benefits and stimulus being provided to families, there wasn't that need for the second income. Also, you pair that with people aren't spending money out, they're not going to the movies, so you don't need as much money. Um, all of that swirling around Definitely affected and has affected and cre- it contributed to be to to my staffing shortages right now because the the pool of people that are normally my fifteen to twenty hour a week employees for whatever reason aren't looking for jobs right now. Another thing related to again in my experience, moms um, has been now that kids are back in school, uh, everything is more precious, and I don't mean that in a negative way, but just kind of reality. Now uh, several of the parents who do work for me, maybe in other years they wouldn't have cared about making it to every football game or every concert or every practice, but now they do care because they didn't have them for two years. And so that's just another dynamic that we've had to navigate uh, as business owners and employers and schedulers.
0: So yeah. It's interesting that you bring up the staffing issues. That's been huge across the country. Mm -hmm. And what's really interesting and unique about Illinois is that in the rest of the country, you have uh, a market that's very favorable to job seekers. And and here, we're one of only eight states, and I want to get this right, we're one of eight states with more unemployed people than job openings, which is different. Yeah. So how does that relate back to your business? Is the staffing shortage that you were facing before bouncing back or is it more nuanced than that? I know you mentioned that a little bit. So I started to look for help and to advertise Help Wanted in like
1: May or June of last year. And normally I would have dozens of people to look through, high schoolers and like I said, mostly second income owner people. Um, From June through now, I interviewed four people. And I think maybe only eight total applied. That is, that's like just the reality. I'm not being dramatic. That's the reality. Um, and uh, who who do I not see right now? Who I always see high schoolers. High schoolers didn't want jobs this summer. That's like that never ever happens ever. But I don't know if it was because they could finally felt free. And like their parents said, don't worry about getting a job. Go enjoy your summer with your friends. I don't know what the reasons are. I I don't have teenagers, but through the grapevine, these are some of the things you hear, right? Um, I didn't have, again, none of those second income earners applied for jobs with me. Um, and so it's not even like I was being picky. (laughs) I hired, like I literally hired you if you showed up (laughs) to to an interview and you know, looked like you could function and hold pieces of candy. <laughs> um, now, we were blessed to hire a couple of really great people uh, who did want jobs and and have added two new team members since then. But, but it's been, it was slim pickings. Uh, and um, other dynamics that I believe pay, play into that in our area, Richmond, Illinois is on the border. So Wisconsin is a minute and a half that way. Um, and... There was certainly a set of people who thought, I could work there and not have to wear a mask all day. But if I work in Illinois, I'm going to have to wear a mask all day. And for some people, that was a barrier for employment. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. It was just a barrier. Also, uh, there is the dynamic, if you're in retail in Illinois, of people didn't want I heard this from candidates. People were concerned about the dynamic of, I don't want to have to tell somebody to put on a mask if they come in without one. And again, that's not even saying what their own personal opinion was on it, but that was another barrier to employment with me. As an employer, people didn't want to work for me because they were afraid of that interaction coming up. So. I don't know, that's four things so far that were keeping people from taking a job that I was offering. Um, Also, right over the state line, there is, in Pleasant Prairie, I believe, there's an Amazon facility and a Uline facility. They're offering, uh, I think, like $15, $16 an hour starting wages for those warehouses. That was not what I was offering starting out at my small manufacturing. So I wasn't competitive in that way. And then in Rockford, which is right up 173, again, we're in Northern Illinois, manufacturers in Rockford are all offering $3,000, $4,000 hiring bonuses right now. So I am in this perfect little hell vacuum <laughs> for, for employment. Um, and all of the businesses up and down Main Street here are struggling with the same thing. You know, And I can't even say I blame people with all of this going on around them and all these other offers. It's it's made hiring people nearly impossible.
0: So I think I just had to answer your question. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely it's interesting to hear you talk about the different dynamics at play. The teenagers thing I had not heard.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, because the opposite has traditionally been true here in Illinois. that teenagers who want to work can't find it. So that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to ask you something else. Um, sort of related. So there are these two hot topics in the news related to the economy and doing business. And mm-hmm. one of them is the labor shortage. Yes. And the other is um, the supply chain disruptions that are making life difficult for people who do things like produce chocolate. So yes. what's the supply chain storyline like for Andersons? Oh, it's it's again, another thing that has made
1: running a small business harder because I can't devote the time I would normally devote to managing my staff, having reviews, being face-to-face with customers, advertising, right, all of the healthy business manager things. I'm taking huge volumes of time now to navigating the supply chain. So uh, a couple examples. It was caramel apple season last month, and we do thousands and thousands of caramel apples every week. all of a sudden, with no warning, I couldn't get granulated peanuts anywhere. And they were just gone. It didn't matter if I was willing to drive to Madison or Iowa or Chicago. No granulated peanuts anywhere for a month. So then you have to decide. That's that's a lot of things. That's, uh, that's phone calls to other suppliers who don't know you and who you have to get approved and credit and all of that. It's not as easy as, like, if you're at Jewel Osco and they're out of milk, you just go to... Angelos or whatever the place is down the street or the gas station. It's not like that when you're a business and you have to order large volumes of supplies from warehouses or third-party providers. They want to know who you are, and they also have an allegiance to their other customers first before you. So when a business tells you they can't get something, it's it's worse than just being out <laughs> because it takes a lot of work to replace that item in their own supply chain or warehouse. And also, the since the pandemic, the, the outages, so normally, before the pandemic, if you're in manufacturing and one of your suppliers knows they're going to be out of sugar or cream, they usually have warning. There's something that happened. There's a there's a blight on the crops. There's a worker shortage somewhere else in the country. And it's predictable. The, the suppliers will call and warn you prices are going to go up or there's going to be a shortage. Plan ahead. With the pandemic, there's no warning ever about anything. You Sometimes you don't even get told when you place an order they're out. They take your order and you pay for it, and then the delivery comes, but half of it's just not there. And I'm not saying that as uh, I'm blaming. I understand the third-party suppliers often are at the mercy, just like we are, of the situation. But it's um, one of the places we get some of our bulk chocolate from since last April. So I'll order like two tons at a time and they'll say, okay, we can take your order for two tons, but we may only have 200 pounds show up on our truck. So we'll send you what we get. So, um, that's, that's, that's what it's like in, in every aspect of ingredients and supplies right now, uh, in any given day. It's not, I mean, it's, it's crazy. Um, We, thank goodness, I think because we are a fourth generation company, myself and Tracy benefit a lot from having decades of experience and gone through recessions before and some other quirks of business when supplies have been affected. So starting back in April and May, my family management team and I sat down and made a list of what are the supplies that we cannot function without, and we're going to stockpile those. And so we will insulate ourselves from any issues that might happen, particularly in November and December. Um, We were only able to do that because we have a well-managed business that had the capital and the finances to support making a move like that. And many small businesses do not have that. That's for most, most small businesses that I know in the area, decisions like that require like the owners or the family to go without paychecks for a couple months to be able to do something like that. Um, And so that's, it's been, it's been a nightmare (laughs) and it's made managing a business hard too, because it's made small businesses like mine and like other area restaurants, it's made us unreliable. And that hurts a lot because as a small business, one of the things that you like as part of the brand of small business is you can have what you want. I can customize for you. Um, I can make it perfect just for you because I am small and I can do that in my manufacturing. But the supply chain issues have, have squashed that ability in many cases to have your favorite super salad or your favorite candy bar. Um, and so that's taking away one of the tent poles of what makes small businesses great. Right, for the from the customer's perspective. So I think that plays into it too.
0: Everything you said is very interesting because I think a lot of people don't hear this firsthand from somebody who's going through it. You yeah. know, they hear supply chain, they hear labor shortage, yeah. and it sounds like a headline you'd read in the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, and you don't see how it connects to you. But one yeah. of the things that I want to get back to that you said yeah was that you and Tracy your stepmother yes have yeah. been through this before yes. in many ways it probably feels like you have never been through something like this before but yes. in other ways you mentioned you know you navigated the great pardon great me the, the, well yeah. the recession and oh, the recession. but I wanted to ask you about your family yes. um because way back when they did navigate the great depression Yeah. so how did mm-hmm. they do that yeah. Because that's an, an interesting story. Yeah. And then how does that compare to what you all have done now?
1: So during the Great Depression and a little bit in World War II. So, okay, the Great Depression, um, great-grandma and grandpa would close the store for like a month or like 29 days out of the month. And they would save up their sugar rations and they'd beg and borrow other people's. Um, and then they would get enough supplies to make candy And then they would be open for like two days and sell out of everything and then do it again the next month. Um, Also, uh, my great grandpa literally cut part of this building off and moved it to the property behind us and sold it. (laughs) And he also sold a bunch of windows out of this side of the building. And if you look across the street, they're on the shed and the garage of the man's property across the street. (laughs) So (laughs) Arthur was like, not gonna give up, damn it! <laughs> so, um, I every time like shit hits the fan here, I'm like, God, I can't give up because he went through all of that, and like it's not that bad yet. Where I'm literally selling pieces of the building, <laughs> so um, yes. So I guess we're a stubborn bunch. <laughs> But that's kind of how we made it through the Great Depression. We also, because Arthur had retained good relationships um, down in downtown Chicago, where the store started, he would make some candy and uh, take the train. There used to be a train line from Richmond to Chicago, and he would take some um, candy back downtown to some of the men's cigar stores and sell some candy there to get through that. So, yeah, definitely. There was also a brief period during World War II, where things were very uh, scarce, where for about six months the store temporarily closed. My great-grandfather, Reynold was away uh, on the front in Europe. And Arthur actually went and worked in California on tanks for the war effort. Um, But then everything reopened once things eased up a little bit with supplies. But, um, yeah, pretty pretty crazy the lengths that uh, generations of my
0: family have gone through (laughs) to keep the place going (laughs) and keep making candy so but you never give up and it's Richmond is a really special place and you mentioned the population is 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 so small 1200 right that's what you said yeah and then you said just now there used to be a train line from Chicago and what people might not realize about this place is that this was the hopping spot for people who are coming from the city or the nearer suburbs going to Lake Geneva. You have to pass through Richmond. And so this was probably a big part of your business, a part of your trade, was these people coming through Richmond on vacation, right? Yes. So after, if you go on our website, there's some interesting photos from this
1: time. We have a timeline of our 100-year history on our website. So after World War II, you get um, there's a bunch of recovery acts and uh, the highway gets another level paved and better and you also um, your people are having more income so they're having vehicles and taking road trips with their family and air conditioning in cars is a new thing and the business goes from this period of barely hanging on by its fingertips to booming, yeah, because this is the corridor that people take up to Lake Geneva, to Fontana, to the the lakes and to to vacation and get away from the city. And during the, uh, the late 50s and early 60s, the candy shop, it was kind of the opposite problem. They would be open until eight or nine o'clock at night every night because that is how many people were coming up and down this corridor. There's a picture of my dad. I think he's like three, and he's walking in the front door, and it's it's like six o'clock at night in the summer. It's just just wild to think about that. The business has had experience with that too, and I would say sometimes it's it's just as hard navigating hard lean times as it is navigating boom times because there's other issues that happen when you're when you're busier than you're staffed for too so
0: yeah and this this place is near and dear to my heart and you have not you and i've known each other for a while we yeah. worked at the northwest herald as a cub reporters yes. you were less of a cub than i was <laughs> um but I got to cover Richmond, and I just yes. got to know this place, and I love it. it it's got such a small-town feel that's uncommon anymore, it especially is. in this area. Yeah. And you feel like the beating heart of this place. You have staying power. I've seen a lot of storefronts change and turn over. Yeah. But you're kind of an anchor here. We Well, we try to be.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think because we've been here for a century – uh, we have four and five generations of customers that continue to choose this Route 12 path, even though there are other options today to make make the stop here. And it's also been handed down to me this understanding that, I'm going to mess up this phrase, but what all boats rise the when the t- tide raises all ships. ships. Yes, that. So it is it is important to me that Richmond does well it is important to me that my fellow businesses in town do well when somebody comes into my shop um, I ask them where are you eating for lunch and then I will suggest one of the places in town I will invite them back for the great coffee down the street or the honey that's made by Peter and Linda down the, down the other way um, so to me if the region is doing well that's good the more reasons there are to come visit Richmond, the more chances are that people will stay and shop. And I want to be on a main street that's populated. I, I want to be in a place that is fun to spend a whole day at rather than... Because it's harder to pass me by if there's more things to come see in town. <laughs> um, and I just love Richmond. I, you know, I moved back here after living other places in the state. And this is, this is where I want to be. I was just mentioning I got my coffee this morning at the Richmond Cafe. And we have five or six restaurants all along Main Street. We have little boutiques and mercantiles and a coffee shop, and they're all individually owned by individual families. And when you step inside of them, you see everything is curated. They've picked the wallpaper, the tables, the the music that's on the radio, the menus, each thing has been curated with care. And I don't know anywhere else like that anymore, where you can go and walk down the street and go into... If you stop at six stores, you've just walked into six people's dreams, like their passions manifested. And I think I could get emotional thinking about it, but <laughs> um, but I think that's it's wonderful. It's worth like crowing about and advertising, and I want and worth fighting for, I
0: guess. So yeah, what you just described here is a little microcosm of the situation the state as a whole finds itself in. So you said a rising tide lifts all ships. Yes, yes, and. Right now, I think that there's this prevailing attitude, not among everybody, clearly not with you because you're a fighter and you, like you said, you want to invest in this community and make it somewhere people want to visit. They want to stay. Yeah. But uh, i I, it's very frustrating that there are so many people who want to raise the white flag and leave. And even if they don't leave, they just want to talk smack. Yes. And that's easy, right? I mean, it's easy to complain. It's easy to talk about the hard things and why they frustrate you and why you want to quit. Yes. But you're not doing that. And, no. And, and I think that's very admirable. Now, having said all of that, yes. I do want to ask you yes. because unique Illinois is a unique place. Yes. Yeah. Uh, what is it like doing business here in this state? So, and
1: I do want to add one more thing going back because I don't take back anything I just said. I believe all of that a hundred percent, but Because of the reality of what it's like to be a business owner right now, and we are in Illinois, so in Illinois, um, even though I want to promote the village of Richmond and I want to promote my brother and sister businesses, this week I made the decision to stop, to step off and away from the planning board that I've been a part of for years, which does our Fall Fest, our Cocoa Walk, um, all of the things that bring people to town because if I want my business to exist, I don't have any more of me to give. To and, and there are my friend business owners all over the town and the county who've been dropping like flies from chambers, from business groups, from planning, because they don't have any more to give to plan things because there are no employees or they can't afford their payroll and they have to do so much personally themselves to keep their small businesses afloat that there is there is no more of them to give for the, the extras, the funds, the festivals, the, the, that kind of thing. So I thought that was important to add because it's part of the reality. Um, so your question was, can you repeat your of question? Course. Sorry. Yeah,
0: I mean, there's, there's a lot to unpack in yeah. all of this, but I had just asked, what's it like doing business here in Illinois and being yeah. a small business, not a big business. What's yeah. it like being a small business in Illinois?
1: The thing that I think, um, there's been a couple of things, uh, and I'll kind of speak globally, uh, maybe first since the pandemic. Um, it's been hard being a business in Illinois that is two minutes from Wisconsin <laughs> because, Uh, And I don't I don't have a business. I do. I can kind of have a a split perspective on this. I have a location in Barrington, which is a suburb. And then I have a business in Richmond, which is on the border. And it's been difficult to navigate how the pandemic with two businesses in two towns that have um, populations surrounding them that feel differently about how this all should be going. Uh, even something like hours that you should be open or who should be wearing masks or who shouldn't be, or who should be vaccinated and who shouldn't be. Um, having a business in Illinois right now means every morning you have to wake up and make 15 more decisions than you ever had to before because of the, the mandates, uh, that the state has handed down and the guidelines, um, I know that I am having to make individual decisions about employees every day that some of my counterparts in Wisconsin that run businesses aren't having to make those decisions. Um, And so it takes, again, more time away from management, more time away from serving the customers, and more time away from manufacturing. Every time I have to sit down and have a discussion of like, somebody was exposed to COVID or were they or were they not and how does that affect this other staff team or what's the current quarantine or what's the mask policy or not the mask policy and I have to do that at two separate locations where my staff and my customers in Barrington all have a different um, sometimes perspective or vote on how things should go than my customers, and my employees in Richmond. So it's, it's navigating a small business in Illinois right now is so un- incredibly complicated. Um, because it, the reality is, um, I employ like 25, 26 people, and they all have individual opinions. And as much as we would like to say Mandates are black and white. laws are black and white. Science is black and white. The reality is I work with humans that all have different opinions, different emotions, and, and managing all of that so they don't half of them don't all quit tomorrow also is another layer that I am constantly con- contending with and grappling with. Um, so that, that, there's that going on. There's also the fact that I have lost customers, right or wrong, to Wisconsin businesses because of, again, that fear that if they come into my door as an Illinois business and they can't wear a mask or they don't want to wear a mask, that um, they're going to get browbeaten and kicked out. So a lot of people, just because of where I'm located in Illinois, don't want to walk in my door. So... Right or wrong, it's, it's something that I'm dealing with, right? Um, and my counterparts over the state line aren't dealing with that right now. So that's another thing that comes into play right now when you're running a business in Illinois. And then you have to account for, too, whether I care or not, whether people come in or not, masked or not, the bottom line is it affects the number of transactions I do a day. And that trickles down in a very practical way to how much candy am I waking that week? Uh, how many people am I giving hours this week? So um, uh, again, it's just these these policies and these decisions have effects that are very black and white for me. Um, another thing that uh, affects us being an Illinois business is the mandatory minimum wage increases. So um, since a couple years ago, whether my employees have earned it or not, they're all getting like dollar an hour raises every year uh, or sometimes more. <laughs> um, but it's made managing more difficult because in the past, right or wrong, raises have been used as merit-based raises or as a carrot to learn more skills or as a reward for lots of extra hard work and time and so because now I've got this scale that I have to meet for everybody um, I can't use raises for any of those things anymore whether people deserve them or don't deserve them in order for me to um, keep up with where minimum wage has to be and keep my scale even a little bit where I want it to be um, I've got that decision is made for me no matter what it's also made things more complicated because I'm a handmade manufacturer and that has meant that my fixed salary or my, my employee costs are going up 10%, 20% every year and I have to decide what can my customers bear? <laughs> like how much can they afford to pay for one single candy bar? Because if I increase the price of my chocolate to cover what I need, will anybody be able to afford my candy anymore? Um, And this has caused us and will continue to cause us to kind of have a crisis of who we are. Can we continue to be a handmade chocolate shop? Do we need to think about automation, even though that's nothing that we ever considered in the past? Um, Because I want people to be able to afford my candy. I want to pay my employees a fair wage. Um, But the the nature of the way that the mandatory minimum wage is increasing the way that it's, it's, uh, mandated and how accelerated it is, is, is making it very difficult for my business to adjust. Um, I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's, it's pain. It's been painful, painful to adjust, I would say. And it has required things like management and owners not taking, uh, not taking raises or, um, it's been five years since I've had a raise. So, and same thing with Tracy. Um, we've chosen to do that. That's our prerogative. I understand that, but in order to take care of our employees and to take care of our business, these are the kind of, these are the kind of things that is requiring from us. Um, and, I'm sure there's more, but those are the big those are the big things that come to mind when I think about being a business owner in Illinois, um, and just again, not whether I agree with these things or not doesn't even matter at this point. It's these this is what I am dealing with.
0: Yeah, I think you know the counterpoint to, on the minimum wage, and everyone always says is that people deserve a fair wage, yeah. and I think what what anyone making that argument might be missing. Mm-hmm. Might be missing. Because of course on the face, if you're doing a good job right. and you're a valuable employee. Right. <laughs> you should be compensated accordingly. Yes. But you you make this point that, you know, these mandates and these rules are existing within the human realm. Yes. This <laughs> assumes that all employers are not making fair and good decisions for their workers. It's it's a good point to make that the decisions that employers are making on behalf of their employees, on behalf of themselves, are not made with evil intent. They're no. almost always yeah. made with good intentions. And and I think that you articulate that well. Um, and I have one more question for you. I, I, I want to talk about family and and this keeps coming up with you because mm-hmm. this is such a family business. Oh it is, yeah. Um, and I know that this has been a big year of adjustment for you. Yes. But what is so special about this legacy that your family has built? What is so special to you and worth preserving about Anderson's? I think the,
1: the longer I'm here, the more I realize that it is because it's about, I think, preserving a way of life and a way of doing things that I feel is, is good <laughs> and I want to be in the world. Like I, I don't want there to be a world without Anderson's Candy Shop in it. I know of so few places that exist anymore where you make things from scratch to finish, and the same place that measures out the ingredients and cooks it is the same place that dips it and packages it and is the same place that sells it having a business like this requires accountability and I feel like the world is losing that all around me and I will fight very hard to preserve this little bit this little bastion of accountability um, that is left and I I think that the fact that we do it with people and not machines also like, there is no better feeling than watching someone physically make candy or make something come into being in front of them. And and maybe it could be widgets, or maybe it's the feeling you get if you bake your own bread at home or rake your own leaves. But that feeling of satisfaction, that I have, I have engaged both hemispheres of my brain, that I have physically physically done something and I put myself into it and I am proud of it. I feel like experiences like that are disappearing all over. And that is what we provide as a business to all of our employees and what they give to us as employees. And I want to keep that going. I want to find a way to keep that going. Um, There's also the fact that I feel like after 103 years, it would be really dumb to stop now, and I would have ancestors in heaven very angry at me. But um, but I also just love that we there's so few things in the world anymore that are passed down from generation to generation. You know, you read everywhere that nobody wants grandma's china anymore, and nobody wants mom's doll collection, um, and even furniture right now. And fashion is very disposable. That's the culture. That's the moment um but i have customers who are in their fifth and sixth generation that are choosing to hand down our candy like like this precious thing that they're giving to their next generation and i don't want to let them down <laughs> um because there's also so little in the world i feel like that that offers true comfort and can take you back to a place where maybe you were happy or you were peaceful Um, and if the annual summer road trip up to Wisconsin and your stop at Anderson's candy shop where you ate your caramel bar, if, if having a caramel bar when you're 70 can take you back to that moment when you were seven and you were happy, I want to keep giving that to people. (laughs) Um, so, and maybe that's giving chocolate more credit than it's worth. (laughs) But for me, that is, that is why I keep coming to work every day. That is why I keep trying to make it work with my kids. That is why I keep, encouraging the men and women downstairs who are working really hard because they've bought into this idea too that what we're doing it tastes great it's the best you can find and it matters even though it is just candy what we're doing here like is important and matters and is good um, so that's I think what we hope to continue.
0: Well, you are someone who sees the big picture. I try, and is, <laughs> and is able to pay attention to detail and get things done. And I admire you so much. <laughs> um, you. And I know that your little ones are here now. And well, so those
1: are um, not my little ones. Those are my. So Britta, who's our supply manager, she brings her. She brings ones hers too. too. Oh, yes. I heard little
0: voices. Yes. I thought, yeah. yeah. Um, She's
1: a superwoman. That's wow. amazing. Yeah.
0: But I really am so grateful that you were willing to share your perspective on these things, because I think it's so important for people to hear firsthand accounts of what all of this has been like, what it continues to present to you that you have to figure out and overcome. And I know you, and so I know you probably love the challenge and are definitely rising to it. So thank you so much for sharing. Oh, yeah. Thank you for for coming out. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To keep up with all of our work at the Illinois Policy Institute and to sign up for our newsletter, visit IllinoisPolicy.org. If you like what you heard today, subscribe and give us a five-star review. We'll see you next week for another episode of The Policy Shop.